Scripture reading for today comes from 2 Samuel chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bailey Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the, the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised, despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins of each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to uh, our service today. Um, For those of you who are new, uh, I want to let you know we're uh, working ourselves through a series of sermons uh, entitled Sacred Pathways, 
uh, based on this book of the same name by Gary Thomas, where we're looking at uh, different ways uh, in which we might worship and love God. And so we've talked about uh, the naturalist, the sensate, the traditionalist, the ascetic, the activist, the caregiver, and today we want to talk about the enthusiast pathway. Uh, Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you again uh, for this time together as we continue to uh, consider uh, these different ways in which we might express our love for you in ways in which we might encounter you. We ask God that in the hearing of your word now, uh, help us to be open in whatever ways that you would speak to us. And in that hearing, God, help us to obey with joy We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So the uh, enthusiast, uh, you're probably thinking of someone or people who are temperamentally uh, outgoing, uh, optimistic, maybe a little over the top uh, emotionally. Uh, Maybe cheerleaders come to mind as it did for me. Uh, But in worship, enthusiasts tend to sit near the front of the church They like to stand, they like to clap, Uh, they will shout hallelujahs and move around. My suspicion is that uh, if we were to kind of, if I had to guess everyone's level of enthusiastic uh, on this pathway, uh, it probably correlates pretty well to where you're sitting in the service today. That those in the front, you're probably scoring higher on this, and those of you in the back, you probably score lower, just as a general rule of thumb. Um, so that's one piece of it Um, but according to Gary Thomas there is another side to the enthusiast pathway than just mere uh, exuberance in worship and that is that they love God not only through celebratory worship but also through these more supernatural forms of faith they want both the excitement of enthusiastic worship but also the kinds of encounters with God that defy logic and reason. So they're open, for example, to dreams and to visions, to uh, surprising answers to prayers as a means through which God might speak to them. They experience God through orchestrated coincidences, which others might see as mere chance. They believe God cannot be contained only through an intellectual comprehension, that God is bigger than that, And that God continues to work uh, and speak to us in ways that defy explanation. Like Gideon, they like to set out the fleece to see how God might direct them and their lives. Uh, Most of you probably have had experiences that mere chance seemed unlikely as an explanation. A series of coincidences that for you point to a supernatural Providence. Uh, Maybe you um, were worried about paying a bill uh, and somehow in the mail comes a check that you had no idea was coming and it just happens to be for the exact amount that you needed to cover that bill. Maybe you pray for a miracle for something, for someone, maybe someone who's sick, and God answers with a yes and and right away. And and so you you see that as as a way of encountering God. Uh, Remember last Sunday I mentioned that God was giving me these sort of extreme opportunities uh, to practice some of these uh, pathways. Um, Like enjoying nature was not enough that I had to go out into the freezing weather to really enjoy 
enjoy nature, right? And um, practicing caregiving one day, again, was not enough. I had to go through a, a whole week of it and, and double duty with two people sick all week, right? Uh, in case I forgot, you know, my wife got sick again yesterday, so I got to practice it one more day. Um, and then I mentioned that for the uh, activist pathway, uh, I got called in for jury duty. So again, just getting summoned and going in was not good enough. I actually got picked to serve on the jury, so I was in the courthouse all week. And, uh, you know, I'm like, God, you, you, it's a little over, you're overdoing it a little bit here. I, I get it, you know. Uh, one day would have been enough. And so on Friday, uh, I'm at the library in my usual place, and a woman whose face I kind of recognized, but I couldn't quite, quite place her, waves to me. And so I kind of wave back because I feel like I sort of know this person, although I have no idea who this is exactly. And so she then mistakenly takes my tentative wave as an invitation to come and sit down and have a conversation with me. And so she sits down and she says, hi, Pastor Dave, so she knows who I am, <laughs> right? And then she starts asking me about the church, how's the family, and the whole time I'm thinking, I know I should know this person, right? I should know this person. And uh, she's talking like I, I know who she is. But, you know, at that point, like, I'm too embarrassed because we're too far along in the conversation. I can't ask her, like, I'm sorry, could you tell me your name? And so the whole time, just like, how do I know this? Right? And so it's someone I haven't seen in, in years. Uh, someone whose name I could not even remember. Someone who just happened to start studying at that library this week. And, you know, um, and she told me during our conversation that, she, that she's actually a very shy person. And instead of just waving high and moving on, she uncharacteristically decided to sit down and have a conversation with me. And then after all of our sort of uh, preliminary small talk, you know what she said to me? She said she was really glad to see me because she had a question on her mind that she's been wanting to ask someone who was a minister. And she asked me, what do you think about visions and people who have them? Right? You know, and that's the stuff that I was looking at. And I thought, yeah, okay. It's a coincidence. I get it. And I'm not suggesting that every coincidence has some deep meaning. But at the same time, um, I don't believe in accidental encounters. I believe God is involved in our everyday affairs and does not leave us to mere chance. Every encounter is an opportunity for ministry and for growth. And given what's been happening to me, at least in these last seven weeks, I interpret it as one more sign from God, one more nudge from God to let me know that he's paying attention to me, that he's trying to encourage me to practice these pathways, that he loves me, that he's teaching me. Uh, so that's me being an enthusiast right there. The way it's been going, I, I'm, I'm a little worried that I'm going to have some, some crazy dream tonight or you know, I'm going to start, I don't know, <laughs> something over the top. Um, you know, my, my wife asked me earlier this week what I was preaching on, and when I told her the enthusiast, she said, yeah, that's not us. <laughs> yeah. And um, it occurs to me that when she said that's not us, it's not just the two of us, but really, stereotypically, the Presbyterian church, us, right? The frozen chosen. Uh, we, we emphasize knowing God. We do. It's a good thing. But to know someone involves a deep, experiential knowledge 
and not just kind of sliding into this sort of mere intellectual knowing of an idea. The danger for us, I think, is that we can make God manageable to make God some kind of an idea to be understood rather than a person to be loved and worshipped. As Presbyterians, I think we need enthusiasts in our midst. Their emphasis on the mystery of God and the celebration, emotional engagement in worship, uh, we need that in our time together. And in our reading today, like King David, dancing in a very un-Presbyterian fashion, in wild abandon, I think is a good reminder for us and an example of this particular pathway. Our reading today is about the Ark of the Covenant that is being brought into the city of Jerusalem. The Ark, let me remind you, was built uh, during the period of the Exodus in the wilderness. And God gave very detailed instructions about how this Ark, uh, it was essentially a, a rectangular chest about four feet or so, two, three feet wide and high. And inside of it, they had the, uh, the tablets, the, the Decalogue, the sign of the Old Covenant, uh, a, a bowl of manna, and some other things. And uh, on top, you had two uh, cherubim, or angels, with their wings going toward the center. And in that space, that was called it's the mercy seat, in that empty space is where uh, the presence of God would be. And it was from there that God would speak to Moses. And so we get very, very detailed instructions about how this was to be constructed and uh, how it was supposed to be used. And it was, a, it was, a, it was the symbol of the presence of God, of God's dwelling among his people, and it was a source of great power. And so sometimes the Israelites would take the ark into battle. Uh, When they walked around the walls of Jericho, the people were led by the ark of this covenant. Um, So about 20 years before our reading today, the ark had been captured by the Philistines in a battle, Um, but then the Philistines, they returned the ark because... Uh, where they placed the ark, they kind of placed it in one of their temples as a kind of a trophy before their idol god. And the next day, their idol had fallen down. Its head was decapitated, its arms cut off, and it was sort of like bowing before for the ark. And so the Philistines, they, they got rid of it because it was also creating a, a, pla- a plague uh, in that city. And so they just kind of put it on a cart and just, you know, had just go away. And it ended up eventually, uh, as you heard this morning, in the household of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And 1 Chronicles 13 and f- through 15, which retells this story, tells us that the ark remained for about 20 years in that house because the Israelites did not seek it in the days of Saul. So for, for 20 years, it's just been just sitting there uh, in this house on a hill, we are told. And so now, after King Saul has died, after David has unified the kingdom, he's defeated the, the Philistines, Everyone is sort of under his rule. He's established the harem. He's got the the military up and running. He's built up a bureaucracy. All the trappings of royalty are in place. And so at the pinnacle now of his political power, he decides at this moment to bring the Ark of the Covenant into his newly established capital, the city of Jerusalem. So that's where our reading takes place. Now, you can look at this... um, and think that David is just doing a very shrewd and purely political act. 
by bringing the ark into the Jerusalem, he is legitimizing his own power and rule that God has chosen me, God has made me king. Uh, this is what other kings did, right? When they um, established their power, they, they would build a temple to their God and say, you know, God, this God is the one who has sanctioned my authority. And so that's, that's what he's doing. And so in a way, you can look at this as David is just saying, hey, God is on my side, you see? I'm bringing the ark. The glory that had departed Israel when the ark was captured is now being brought back. And so here is God, and God is saying, I am the king. So there is certainly this kind of political benefit for David's actions here. Um, I think of like presidents in this country, for example, they'll often invoke the name of God, or they'll often end speeches with God bless America. And, uh, you know, that's driven by political motivation, certainly. But I think that with at least some of the presidents, uh, there, there is an element of personal and genuine faith. Uh, for example, given the way that he's lived out the rest of his life thus far, uh, it's easier to believe that a prayer given by someone like uh, Jimmy Carter is sincere and comes from a place of personal faith and is not driven purely by political agenda. And so in the same way, when we look at the entire life of David, uh, we can acknowledge certainly there are political implications for his actions. But at the same time, we can also see that his heart is fundamentally oriented toward the worship of God. He is sincere in his faith. When we look at his overall trust of God, when we consider all the songs that he wrote about God for worship, when we look at his desire to build a house for God, when we think about the efforts that he went to, um, to bring the priesthood back, um, we can see that the movement of the ark to Jerusalem was not mere political expedience. He's serious about God. He's serious about wanting to worship God and for God to be the center of life and his rule in Jerusalem. It helps to legitimate his rule, certainly, but it's also clear that he wants to honor God for his successes and to make sure that God, that God is at the center of their life together. And so this movement now, as you heard in the reading, uh, takes part in, uh, in two parts. In the first effort, David gathers 30,000 men, which, by the way, uh, it's the same number of men that were killed in the battle against the Philistines uh, when they lost the ark. So he's got this massive, massive group uh, procession now um, and puts the ark on a cart, as the Philistines had done, and they bring it out of the house of Aminadab, which was on the hill. And so it's, I mean, you can imagine, it's going to be crazy, right? 30,000 people, you know, with cymbals and castanets and trumpets and like just loud, you know, dancing and singing and shouting. And they're making their way toward the city of Jerusalem. Um, But at some point, the cart that the ark is sitting on stumbles. And you heard Yuza, who was in the back, when it tipped, kind of reached out to, to steady it as any one of us might have done, right? You're, you're walking and something tips over. Like, of course, you're, the natural instinct is to kind of reach out and, and steady it. But when he does that, it says that he was struck dead and he died right there on the spot. It's a little shocking. It seems unfair to strike someone dead for what seems like a kind of an innocent act uh, 
And so David responds with anger, and then he becomes afraid of God because he's now wondering, is this how God is? Is God just going to start, like, striking people dead? Why does God do this? Well, the simple answer is that they had violated God's law. They had disobeyed God's word. That's really the simplest answer. God clearly commanded that the ark was not to be touched and that it was supposed to be carried in a very particular way. It was not to be put on a cart. The ark had these rings through which you were supposed to insert these poles made out of a particular wood, and only the Levites were supposed to carry the ark whenever the ark had to be moved. Very, very specific instructions. And so this is something that David should have known. Or his, you know, his advisor should have let him know based on the scriptures. And so this death is really on David, I think. He made a decision to put it on a cart, which then led to the stumbling, which then led to... Basically, Yuza had very limited and only bad choices left. Had David obeyed God's word from the beginning, this entire tragedy could have been avoided. And I think the lesson for us is that in our worship of God, even in our celebration and enthusiastic worship of God, we must never disregard God's holiness nor disobey God's clear word. We must not treat God as if a God were just something like some piece of furniture that can be moved however we want from one spot to another. A.W. Tozer wrote, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely bettered. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. And Rudolf Otto described the holiness of God as the mysterium tremendum, the terrible mystery. The holiness of God is awful in the original or the ancient sense of this word awful, filling us with awe, with with mystery, with terror and wonder all, all at once. We cannot forget this aspect of God. In the scriptures, when people encounter God, and the holiness of God, there is always this, this odd fear. At Bethel, we read about Jacob after he dreamt of God. He woke up and he was afraid. And it says that, and he said, how awesome is this place? You know, um, I think that's a poor choice of word there. Because when we read how awesome is this place, we're thinking Jacob's like, wow, how awesome is this place? But the word there is fear. He's thinking like, how full of awe is this place? Moses, when he encountered the voice of God in the unburning bush, he too was filled with fear. He hid his face because he was filled with this this awe. When Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples again were filled with fear. It's a healthy fear when you encounter this, this, this absolutely other holiness of God. And I think when people sometimes in scriptures, they disregard or forget about this holiness of God, they're struck down immediately, like Yuza was today, and others like Ananias and Sapphira, who lied to the Holy Spirit, and the sons of Aaron, who, who burned a strange fire before God. 
the fact that it doesn't happen more often in scriptures, I think, points to the fact that, that God is a God of mercy, a God of patience. It's not that it's point that God is apathetic about our treatment of his holiness. You know, um, when I was a kid, uh, the church that I attended with my parents, they, they try to instill this sense of awe or, or holiness about God um, by way of keeping um, the, the church or sanctuary or the Sabbath uh, as a kind of a separate day or as a way of treating the day very uh, differently. Uh, for example, uh, we were not allowed to wear jeans to church because that was disrespectful. Um, we were not allowed to bring any sort of you know, food or anything into the sanctuary. We were, we were allowed to like run around in the fellowship hall, uh, but we were not allowed to run around in the sanctuary. We were allowed to play the piano in the fellowship hall, you know, whatever we wanted, but we could not play the piano in the sanctuary unless it was like hymns and you know, Christian music, things like that. Uh, we were not allowed to go shopping. We were not allowed to eat out. Uh, the adults didn't even play golf on Sunday. Um, you know, all these kinds of ways of trying to, um, to honor God and to be mindful of the holiness of God to separate out the Sabbath. And I remember one time during a Sunday school when I was, when I was a kid, um, you know, we had a, a stack of Bibles uh, that we would take out to, to read for Bible study. And one time, one of the kids uh, was passing out the Bibles. And, you know, normally you're supposed to pass a Bible one at a time to the person sitting next to you and it would go all the way around. But he took the Bible and he started just tossing them to the, across the table. And everyone was just like, we were just like, God's going to strike him dead, you know? Or at least the teacher's going to scream or, or something. Because, like, how can you throw the word of God? Like, that's so disrespectful, right? And, and so we had that kind of sense. And I remember when I was a kid, I, I wouldn't even, I was afraid to, like, write in my Bible or to, like, underline it because, you know, I don't want to, you know, desecrate the, the word of God. And we had that kind of uh, sense of, again, I'm not saying that this is all right or anything, but there was this sense in which we approached worship in, in a way that we approached at least the Sabbath day with reverence, with a certain awe before God. And that was one way of sort of exp- expressing that. And, and I think in our informal culture, uh, it's very easy for us to kind of cross this line in the name of comfort you know, and Jesus is my friend, he's sitting next to me, right? To kind of cross this line into irreverence and forgetting about the, the holiness of God. And I think we need constant reminders of that. Uh, there, there ought to be, there must be a reverence before God in our worship. There must be reverence when we praise with all of our hearts, There must be. There must be reverence when we pray and make honest confessions. There must be reverence when we give with cheerfulness, right? When we we give to the offering, to to use two hands, for example, as a symbol of that reverence. There must be reverence when we listen with, with expectation and with an attitude of obedience. There must be reverence not only for the people who prepare the the communion elements, but, but as we receive, as we eat, and as we drink. There ought to be the, the sense of holiness before God. And I think we need, we need these kinds of reminders, as David received, of God's holiness. Uh, 
we find something like this, for example, uh, C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember in the first book, when the children first hear about Aslan, they don't know who Aslan is, and they have this uh, conversation with the, the beaver family, you remember? And uh, one of the children, Susan, uh, is told that you know, Aslan is a lion, and she, she's very surprised. And so she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. To which Mr. Beaver uh, famously replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God, God is not safe and manageable. He's wild and he's free, but he's good. Right? That's, that's Lewis, I think. It's another way of saying God is holy. And so David gets a fresh reminder of that, and maybe that's what we need as well. And so at the end of this first half of our reading, he's wondering now, is this what God is like? Will more deaths follow? And so he decides to leave the ark in the home of uh, Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months. And during those three months, he discovers that there is no more death. In fact, the house gets blessed. And so now we move to the second part of the story where now it pivots. Verse 12 is, is the pivot of the story. The ark, we realize, where God is present, there is blessing. There is life, right? It's a mistake to think where the ark is, where the presence of God is, there is these sort of unexpected deaths. That's, that's not the point. As David discovered, where the ark is, where the presence of God is, the intent is for life and for blessing. And so they decide to move the ark a second time. And the second time they move it, they do it right. The Levites carry it on the poles. Now, it doesn't say that in our text. But if you go to 1 Chronicles 13 through 15, where they retell the story, they spell it out very clearly. The Levites carried the ark. No more cart. And you see here, it says, in verse 13 in our reading, those who bore the ark. So you know people are carrying it. It's those people. It's not, it's not ox. It's not a cart. Nothing like that. And so they obey God's word now. They do it correctly. And on top of that, on top of all the pageantry and all the, all the um, trumpets and everything else, there is this further addition of uh, making sacrifices. And so there's a certain level now of, um, again, I think reverence now toward the carrying of the ark to Jerusalem. And then the verse that probably everyone knows it talks about David danced with all his might wearing a linen uh, ephod. Um, the linen ephod is kind of a, imagine it's like a short robe um, that was typically worn by priests. And so the significance of this is that he, King David, as king, is leading the people in worship. That's the point of that little detail. He's not just the political king. He is going to reign over a liturgical kingdom, a worshiping community. That's the point. Worship is going to be the center of the, of the nation of Israel. Their life together is going to be characterized by the worship of God. That is going to be what's distinctive. And so the king who leads the people politically is now leading the people in the worship of God, in the sacrifices, in the, in the singing, and in the dancing, in this, this outrageous 
dancing before God in a, you know, imagine like a, like a short skirt, just, you know, jumping up and down, leaping wildly. That's what he's doing. And then he further blesses the people with cake, with meat, with raisins. It's a great day of worship for everybody. The entire nation is renewed in their commitment through this, this worship. Um, and so then after this uh, public worship, David goes home to privately bless his family. But instead of further blessing now, uh, David is met with sarcasm and contempt from his former and now once again wife, Michael, the daughter of Saul. She had looked out the window when David was dancing out of control and she despised him for it. She thought it was unbecoming of a king, shameful to act like a fool in front of everybody. Uh, We can imagine today uh, there would have been photos of this. Twitter would have been all over it. Everyone would have said, oh my gosh, look at, you know, how embarrassing and right. Uh, His skin would have been exposed all over the place. And so she she has a point, right? We could say she has a point. It's not dignified for the leader of your nation to do something like this, right? Imagine, you know, even in our secular society, imagine a, just, you know, governor or a president doing something like this. Like, it's hard to, like, eh, that's, right? Respect the office, we would say. Michael, however, is not fundamentally concerned for David and she's not speaking out of love. Notice that throughout this text, she refers to him in the third person. She does not call him David or my, my husband. She refers to him as the king of Israel, as King David, rather than someone who has a personal relationship with her. She is also called Saul's daughter throughout, not David's wife. She did love him once, we know that from an earlier story. She rescued David once through a different window when she was next to him, when her father tried to assassinate him. But now, over the years, the relationship has soured, and now it's just a marriage of um, political convenience. And with her, um, the house of Saul comes to an end. And her complaints fundamentally miss what David was doing. David says, I was celebrating before God. He was celebrating before the Lord, not before the people, and certainly not before her. He was doing it for the Lord. Remember when when Paul told the Philippians, um, he said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. Lord. That is why we rejoice. That's why David danced and leapt. It was for the Lord. That's what mattered. He did this because he recognized that God had chosen him, that God had taken him out of all his people and chose him. Not because he was great, but for whatever reason God chose him. God chose him and he celebrated that. He was willing to uncover himself to be naked before God, as it were. Maybe maybe echoing us back to the the Garden of Eden when when Adam and Eve walked naked with God in that that intimacy. 
we have the same opportunity. You know, we don't get to rule a kingdom, but we have the same reason to celebrate as David did. Because God chose us. And I think that's the second lesson for us. I know that this was a special worship service. As far as we know, David did not dance uh, half-naked during other um, times of worship. But that is no reason for us to discourage exuberance in worship. It's clear from the Psalms that David wrote that loud shouting, loud music, exuberant, exhilarating dance was not unusual in the worship of God. You know, you, you look through the Psalms and just note how often it says things like shout to the Lord and praise God and, and so on. Now, again, as Presbyterians, we have a tendency, right? I think our great temptation, our default mode is Michael. We can despise those who are worshiping with too much emotions. I know, I know I'm guilty of this. I've been to some services and I'm sitting in the back and I see people in the front you know, doing crazy stuff or what I think is crazy stuff and I'm thinking, that's a little out of control. Right? I get suspicious of excessive expressions um, of emotion, uh, certainly among certain traditions. Uh, I feel uncomfortable when, when I'm, I, I've been to services where everyone is literally jumping and dancing out of their seats. And I, I'm not comfortable with that. Um, and, and I know that being judicious, and, and we do want to weigh, like not everything is good, right? We want to be judicious, and, and that's good. But despising or judging joy in worship, I think that's a sign of death. Like when we're, when we're just critical because people are just like praising God, that's a sign of death for us. You know, I know um, I'm not talking so much about here necessarily, but you know, some people come to late, come to service late. Some it's just it's just a bad habit. I know that. Uh, for others, it's intentional. They, they come a little bit late because they don't want to sing. They they want to kind of skip out on the on the praise time, and just want to hear the sermon. Uh, okay. Some people they'll say, well, you know, I don't really like to sing. Uh, I don't sing well. Um, you know, I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor, um, people would always sit like the way they sit, would sit on school buses, right? The younger kids would be in the front and all the older senior kids would be in the back and the senior kids would be like, like this in the back, right? Because they're too cool to raise their hands or to do motions or, um, you know, they can't get into the, you know, because that's, you know, right? I'm too, I'm too cool for that. And, um, and so people have all kinds of reasons why, you know, they, they don't want to sing, you know, um, Maybe you have a terrible voice. Um, I would invite you to come to the front because then no one can hear you, right? I sing in the front now, so the only people who hear me are, you know, Sam and Yuna. They're the only ones who can tell that I'm singing out of tune. So, so you can do that. Um, it's not about your preference. It, it doesn't matter if you're out of tune. When the congregation shouts, you shout. It's not for you. And your concern about your um, singing out of tune or what people might think of you, um, that, that cannot be your primary concern. You've got to be thinking about how 
will God be pleased with my worship today? That's the question you have to ask. Am I worshiping God with all my heart, with all my might? Or am I just trying to look religious and dignified in front of the other people? David didn't care what he looked like. He was all about worshiping God with all his might. He leapt, he danced, and honestly, he looked stupid. Right? He looked foolish. But he didn't care. Because he did it for the Lord. And you know what he knew? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outer appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that's what mattered for David. He knew that God would see what was on his heart, whether or not he was worshiping for God or whether he was just putting on a show for the people. And so whatever Michael said, whatever the people thought, it didn't matter to him. He was thinking about, will God be pleased with my worship today? You know, I remember in the early days of our church, our church had the reputation of being a party church. Do you remember that? I remember going to weddings um, when some of you got married, and you would all dance, right? And other churches would be there, and they would like look at you guys, and they would be shaking their heads. <laughs> I remember a few pastors would come up to me and say to me, uh, Pastor Dave, your members sure like to have fun, <laughs> which was code for get these sinners in line. <laughs> I realize that now. But you didn't care. You didn't care. You were celebrating. You were celebrating. But now what's happened? I went to a wedding with with a few of you not too long ago. And you're not dancing anymore. You've got kids. You're tired. You know, my wife and I were sitting at this table uh, just recently. And, you know, normally my wife and I are the first to leave the wedding reception, right? Because typically on a Saturday, I want to get home for Sunday. And so we, we normally leave, you know, relatively early. And it was so funny because she and I were sitting at this table and all these other people from our church, they were all leaving first because they had kids, they had babysitters, they were tired. And she and I were like the last to leave this, this wedding, <laughs> right? It's come full circle. Um, you know, when you get older, it's, it's harder to dance, right? It is. It's easy to get cynical about worship. It is. It's just harder to let yourself go, to, to look foolish in front of people. But we have to fight that. We've got to fight that. And I think especially because we're Presbyterians, we have to ignore our impulses at self-dignity and let the Spirit of God move us to worship. You know, when people complain to Jesus that people are being a little too uh, enthusiastic in their praise, Jesus said, you know, if they don't praise, then these, then these stones will shout out. Don't let the impulses of Michael keep you from worshiping with exuberance and despising those who do. And don't let the impulse of Yuza 
make you treat God with anything less than the utmost holiness and reverence that God deserves. Let me leave you with this, with this thought. You know, when ancient commentators... Whoa, too excited there. <laughs> when, ancient, <laughs> when ancient commentators uh, read this story about the ark coming to Jerusalem, uh, they realized that Luke, in his gospel writing, must have been thinking about this story as he was writing his gospel. You notice that David found the ark in Baalai Judah, which is a town in Judah, in the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. That's kind of an odd little detail, right, to, to mention that, that it was on a hill. I think Luke picks this up because after Gabriel tells Mary about her pregnancy and the pregnancy of Elizabeth, Mary goes with haste, according to Luke, to the hill country, to a town of Judah. After the death of Uzzah, David asks, how can the ark come into my care? When Mary visits Elizabeth, she asks, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? David feels unworthy to be in the presence of the ark, and Elizabeth feels unworthy to be in the presence of the one who is carrying her Lord. King David danced and leapt with all his might in the presence of the ark, and Elizabeth's baby leapt in the presence of Mary. The ark stayed in the house of Obed-Edom for three months, and Mary stayed with Elizabeth for three months. Do you see what Luke is doing here? The ark contained the old covenant, the law. It carried, it symbolized the presence of God, this ark. And it came into Jerusalem. In the same way, Mary is bearing the presence of God in Jesus. And Jesus is the new covenant. Just as the ark represented the dwelling place of God, so now Jesus is the new dwelling place of God of God. He is the one now in whom God is fully present. In him now God will speak just as God spoke to Moses from the ark. Now God will speak in Jesus to all his people. This is the good news for us. In Jesus, God is with us. As the ark was with the people, symbolizing the presence of God with the people. His holiness is still to be held in awe, but you see now that this holiness will also lead to the cross and make possible for us to receive mercy and eternal life. And so it's, it's more reason for us to celebrate and rejoice. If David rejoiced because the ark came to Jerusalem, how much more than for us that God is here now with us? Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I. The church is the dwelling place of the Spirit of God. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? So every day, every time we gather, we have cause 
for celebration. We can rejoice in the Lord. Regardless of what you're going through or what you're feeling, you can rejoice together in the Lord because he has chosen us, because he has saved us, because he is with us, even to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord, we cannot comprehend what it means for you to to be here, to dwell with us in this, your people. And maybe it's something that we can never fully make sense of. But God, help us to know that you are truly present. And in that knowledge, in that joy, help us to worship you with all our might to sing with all our hearts, to pray with all honesty, to fully give of ourselves to you, to be in awe of your holiness, and to to be embraced fully by your love. We ask all this in Jesus' name.